how I know them actually from about God, that must have been six years ago or something now. And I've been donating to them ever since. Oh, um, good. So I was I was into them before they were big, you know. <laughs> the Velvet Underground of tax related things. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, uh, only a thousand people have ever read that stuff, but they all started their own <laughs> tax related reforms. <laughs> it is refreshing that it's a tax justice uh, think tank that is actually interested in progressive taxation. That isn't a, a vehicle for landlords. Yeah, yeah they isn't <laughs> like the Taxpayers Alliance, which <laughs> yeah, is like, yeah. no one should pay any tax, least of all rich people. <laughs> <laughs> think that i'm in the wrong job because how easy would it be to set up some of one of these like horrendous dark money organizations and just pay our pay ourselves 200 grand each and get invited on the bbc every other week to talk about uh, budget stuff yeah i mean the question there really is how easy do you find it to butter up donors <laughs> yeah the, yeah like a small group of hideous donors yeah it's like, true. how how willing are you to bend the knee right. to the I mean, I'm not saying like, I'm not saying yeah. it would be a soul-crushing experience, but like, yeah. you know, as a as a hustle. But I think you're right. The rest of it's pretty easy. It's really it's the behind the scenes begging for money part. I think is the pretty bad part. I think you'll yeah. find Rowan that I'm totally willing uh, to do. That. <laughs> I think you'll find exactly. I'm absolutely. I'm yeah. happy to enhance my uh, my new foreign policy think tank. Yeah, yeah. Liberty Union. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> every every man has his price, and the market has determined mine to be oh, 102,000 pounds a year. That's what it can be called. The everyman think tank. Yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, nice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. How about um, the Common Sense Tax Alliance? <laughs> yes. How about that? That's Hang a good on, one. if I type in Common Sense Think Tank, let's see what. No comes one up. else um, could. No one could disagree with that think tank. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the Common Sense Institute. Awesome. There you go. That exists. <laughs> of course it does. I bet they're just advocating for like regime change in every yeah. Latin American country. <laughs> it is. It is, of course, uh, believes in sound fiscal and economic. Research oh, here we to go. uphold yeah. Colorado's economic vitality and individual opportunity. In order to understand economics, you just need to read Atlas Shrugged. <laughs> that, that tweet where it's like, I'm, a, I'm socially liberal but fiscally conservative. <laughs> <laughs> the problems are bad, but their causes are good. Yeah, the causes are very good. <laughs> Extremely good. <laughs> Hello everyone and welcome to episode 41 of Connected and Disaffected, a podcast about technology and the future of politics. I'm Raj Thomas, joining me I have Rowan Emsley. Hello. And Warren Peace. Hey everyone. This week it's all about tax. We like to keep the energy high here at CND headquarters. <laughs> oh uh, yeah. You know, get some of those upbeat summer bangers now that <laughs> summer is summer is round the corner so we're going to kick off with an interview with think tank tax justice uk who recently performed a survey to get people's thoughts on tax and the results may surprise you um now after this we'll be going into um you know the kind of reaction to this obviously there's been some movement recently around uh, or lack of movement as we'll come to around plans for tax changes in the coming few years um, and we're going to be talking about that and the labor response but first let's uh throw it over to rowan um to introduce this interview welcome back to tax talk <laughs> um 
Yeah, so I uh, reached out to Tax Justice UK after I saw a report that they did called Talking Tax, How to Win Support for Taxing Wealth. This was doing quite well on kind of progressive lefty Twitter. And I was taking a look at it and I thought actually a lot of the results were unusual and surprising and uh, deserved a bit more attention. So I reached out and um, spoke to Paul Hebden, who's their head of comms and was kind of spearheading this report. Uh, yeah, and I, I just think more people should be aware about actually what the great British public thinks of tax because it's not really what we've been told. And now there's some figures to back that up. So here's Paul. So first thing first. Who are you? What do you do? So my name is Paul Hebden. I'm head of communications at Tax Justice UK. We are a tiny um, tax justice organisation based in the UK, obviously. Um, we've been going for about three years and we campaign primarily around issues to do with wealth taxation and issues around inequality uh, in the UK context. Okay, so I wanted to talk about um, this report that you you guys put out in September last year, Talking Facts, um, which had a lot of lovely statistics in it. But maybe to start with, um, maybe worth talking about like the wider project of uh, taxing wealth. And like, how, you know, how, how can we get more people to support tax? Basically, kind <laughs> of the big, the big challenge. Right? Yeah, it's a, it's a really big issue. So, I mean, it's probably worth me just explaining a little bit of the background to the report. Um, Gosh, it's, we started this work right just at the end of 2019, just as the 2019 general election was coming to an end in the UK. And I think we it took really nine months to get this done. We did a, a whole host of focus groups um, up and down the country. I think we did about 12 or 11, I think, in the end, um, where we were talking to people really just about inequality, about taxation, about public services and public attitudes around those sorts of things. Um, no one had done any work on this issue of tax, really, uh, in a few years. There had been some work done um, by the Fabians, for example, had done something called the Tax Detox um, a few years ago. Um, and there'd been other sort of really interesting bits of work around sort of reframing the economy by the New Economics Foundation, the New Economy Organisers Network, things like that. And so we saw an opportunity really to be doing something specifically on tax. So we could just get a sense of where the public are. On some of these issues, like I say, it was nine months, another process we did. We did many, many focus groups. We did focus groups also within the pandemic as well, because I think we wanted to check where people were on some of some of the key stuff. So we did focus groups. Um, we also did several polls, including a big 3,000 person poll in the, in the middle of the projects as well, um, which produced a lot of data. So it, it uncovered a lot of stuff. So yeah, it's pretty worth explaining. We're working with Servation, who are the public attitudes company, um, and also with University of Sheffield, they've got their, with, with Sperry, which is their political and economic research institute, um, who are really interested in, in some of the focus groups and will be doing some academic uh, papers off the back of it. So that was the team. And I think what we really wanted to do with this work was yeah, really. I, I think, you know, like I said, no one had done anything like this in a few years. I think we wanted to give, uh, we wanted to have a, a check on where the public are on certain issues around tax justice. Um, we wanted to take a look at attitudes to inequality, attitudes to um, austerity, and, and and use this as a basis to hopefully go on and try to reframe some of the arguments, I think, um, around tax uh, for the public. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of data out there. 
So, but can you kind of tell me what, what, what are the headlines? What's the one thing that I'd read in the press release? Well, okay, so I, I guess three or four main findings which I point to. I think the first one is around the issue of tax avoidance. The public hate it. Um, but it's important, I think, we found that you give people are quite fatalistic about the prospect of change. And this is something that comes from a lot of our work. Mm. So I think, you know, whilst the public hate it, I think we need to give people hope that things can change. Um, so when we talk to people about, about tax avoidance and talk about morality and obligation and fairness and that sort of stuff, and they really are fed up that, you know, when they see examples of people basically avoiding their obligations. So I think we found something like 84% of people want politicians to close loopholes and stop big companies and wealthy people avoiding tax. So that's 84% amongst the general population, but it rises to as high as 91% amongst 2019 conservative voters. So there's a big broad consensus here that, you know, there's a lot of really good work being done on tax avoidance. It's really toxic now. People want to see change. But it's really important that we, I think, show people that it's possible to bring about change. Um, so I think that was the main thing on that. Um, on public on public spending and public services, yeah, there's a real sense of austerity is really not popular. Um, and there was support for tax rises, especially on the wealthy, um, which I suppose in some ways some people say, well, that's not surprising because everyone's happy to tax other people. <laughs> but yeah, no, I think a real sense, and I think in broad terms, really just the sense that, you know, people are, as far as economics and tax is concerned, they're pretty they're pretty progressive, really. People do generally say, I'd be happy to pay a bit more tax if it meant you know better public services, better NHS, whatever. And I think the key thing that we found during the lockdown was actually the shift that occurred in opinion amongst conservative voters. So we had more conservatives leaning, starting to lean towards ideas, for example, in terms of taxing wealth more effectively and things like that. So that seemed quite significant. Um, I think the third thing we found, which was a bit of a surprise and a bit of a hard message for us and some and, and, and probably our movement, was was around attitudes towards wealth. So if you might, if you remember back during, and I, I don't know how much, I don't know how keenly you followed the UK election in twenty nineteen. Unreasonably keenly. Okay. <laughs> do you remember? Do you remember the whole argument that flared up about billionaires? Yes. Do you remember that? And it's, yeah, so I think it was on Five Live, and there's a big conversation with a Labour MP who said, you know. Basically, billionaires shouldn't exist. And... Yeah, billionaires are policy failure. That's of, right. That kind of discourse, yeah. Which is progressive, so I think, you know, there's many people who would probably get behind that. One of the things we found in focus groups was just how relaxed the public are about wealth. So if you ask people, you know, do you think that billionaires should exist when people are using food banks? I mean, people understand there's an unfairness there, but they're very quick to defend the rich. There's a very much a sense that you know people earn their wealth, that they work hard for their wealth, and that wealth, that the wealth that the billionaires get, has been has been gained purely through hard work, not and, and not through advantage or special advantages. And this is really interesting because I think it speaks to we felt and looking at other research, it kind of speaks to the security that people feel they get from wealth, and they're probably correct in this because in the UK there isn't much of a social safety net. Um, it's not unreasonable for some re- people, you know, to think that you know owning a second home is a is like having a pension, right? Um, so we've got to be quite careful. I think what, what we realise is you've got to be quite careful when you talk to people about wealth because you know wealth isn't a bad thing if you haven't got any. Uh, it was a really interesting finding that you know being sort of aggressively anti-wealth can kind of backfire when people see it as their only legitimate way of protecting themselves, their families, and 
and, and their children, that sort of thing. So a really hard message around wealth to sort of get our heads around, which is probably links into ideas of security and things like that. There's, there's been a few flare-ups on that topic, right, where AOC talked about putting in a, a very high um, tax rate for the very, very wealthy. Yeah. And there was enormous, um, enormous resistance to that, you know, from rich and poor people alike. So that's interesting to see it's the same... Yeah, go, going after the wealthy is not necessarily uh, the right way to go, even though people are happy for them to be Yeah, I think it's this issue about if you talk about wealth in generic terms, then people think, well, you're capturing me as well. You're going to stop me. Mm. But then, and also, this, and this is the point that's, that's made by people, and I think it's a, it's, a, it's a correct one, that people find it very hard to understand what being a billionaire is. Right. Um, you know, the, and there's that classic stat that, you know, if you earn $5,000 a day since the day that, Columbus sailed to America, you still wouldn't be a billionaire today. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the sort of the scale that we're talking about when we're talking about billionaire wealth is just so astronomically hard to, to understand. I think it's something to be really conscious of because I think in the UK in particular where, and we're seeing this right now, that groups, I mean, on COVID, for example, parts of, of, of society who didn't have financial wealth going into the crisis have actually got further into debt um, and really struggled, whereas people like me who's in a, a secure reasonably secure job not not having a commute anymore can't spend any money we're saving money right so mm-hmm. i mean last year saw record we, we saw record amounts of household savings in the uk overall yeah. during the pandemic but that disguises the fact that there are parts of society where they haven't got there isn't any wealth so yeah I mean, some wealth is about security and i think it doesn't always help to talk about it in generic terms. I mean, I'm glad you mentioned sort of AOC as well in, in the US because I think the situation in the US is, is different and there is much more of a movement towards like you know, taxing net wealth and, and that sort of thing. And I guess the kind of final thing we found, and this is something that I think has been picked up elsewhere as well, you know, there's a tendency for us as kind of, I guess, techie people and quite obsessive sort of campaigners to you know, think that the stuff we're talking about matters to everybody. But it really doesn't. So people just don't understand what the tax system is. Mm. Um, they don't understand how the economy works. And what we found was that there's a certain framing or kind of, a, I guess, a cultural understanding that people use uh, in order to make sense of the economy and to make, make sense of tax. And this kind of framing, this cultural understanding is known as the container model. So basically, people conceive of the economy as something we put money into that certain other people, in inverted commas, take more out of people right. these are often people you'd hear in focus groups quite a lot um you know oh, it's, it's people who are on benefits oh it's immigrants they take more out than they should we'll put in and they take out and so there's this kind of container model that really people really use in order to sort of access some kind of understanding of how the economy works of course that's you know that's not necessarily how the economy works at all um in many ways but it's it's kind of a really constraining frame if you like that we have that we're kind of working within so there's that so that people don't understand the tax system particularly well i think the other thing as well and, it, and it, in some ways it relates to that what i've just said that there's also we, we sort of detected this idea that you know people tend to see public spending as synonymous with waste i, I would use the example of a taxpayers alliance in this regard um you know the taxpayers alliance very rarely talk about tax they talk about waste um They've been very successful, really, in in getting the public to associate anything that's around public spending with this idea that it's wasteful spending. So that was a very that was something that was quite deeply held. So yeah, there's 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 issues around trust. There's issues around understanding the economy, and there's a lot of disinformation and there's skepticism that anything can change. So that's yeah, I mean, it's quite a depressing way to sort of round it off. But 
I think there's positive stuff in this as well, but yeah. Those sort of powerful narratives, and it's interesting that you know you can find them coming up again and again. The oversimplification of the economy, right, which we have seen the Chancellor uh, doing uh, quite recently, and also you know, yeah. BBC News, like this is a very prominent thing where they kind of talk about the economy as though uh, this image of the economy as a, a small business, the credit card, rather than a, a, you know an actual country that can print money, uh, leverage taxes, um, has massive amounts of holdings, all this kind of other yeah. stuff that is not available to normal people. Like that is the way that it is presented. It makes sense that that is the way that people understand it if they haven't you know, made an effort to study it or look further into it. Right? Your passive knowledge is going to be based on it. Yeah, I think, and I think this is the thing about, I guess the thing about framing, um, I mean, it's like, I mean, the most effective metaphors that get used in order to explain complicated things are usually the ones that stick so and i think that this is something that people on the conservative right have an easier job with right because so that idea of like yeah i don't know the, the, the nation's credit card which is the, the other one that, that get you gets used quite a lot in the uk you know we've maxed out the credit card that's i think that's what laura kunzberg said i think um pre-budget report in november yeah it's just not correct i mean it just does not make sense but there's a reason why it cuts through because it makes a kind of cultural common sense, if you know what I mean. And and one of the criticisms that we can probably hold up to ourselves is, well, what's the what's a better metaphor? What, what better metaphor can we arm Laura Kunzberg with so that she doesn't rely on something like on, on, on a trope like that, which, which does sort of reinforce a certain way of looking at the economy that's not necessarily progressive. And I think that it's probably one of the weaknesses of our research. We never found a more, it's really hard to sort of find these alternative framings that make a kind of common sense to people in focus groups that they'll use instead of the credit card. The reason why the credit card analogy works is because it makes sense to people. Um, and obviously that can be used to um, justify a certain set of economic and political ideas and policies. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes we're not as good on the progressive side at, you know, find well, what are the alternative common sense things that are latent in some of these focus groups that people use, right? It's about bringing some of those framings out. It's a problem for us. It, it definitely is a problem for us. I think it's easier to frame things in those ways amongst the public um, than it is to be, you know, reframing things. What One of the other... Uh, powerful narratives that you're also, you know, kind of revealing of these focus groups is is around wealth and earning, like the connection yes. between if you are very wealthy, it means you've done lots of work that is high value, right? Which is obviously an oversimplification and yeah. increasingly untrue, right? Like the, the way in which wealth is driven by financial markets that are completely divorced yeah. even from sales is a uh, is is broadly understood in the sort of financial community, but everyone's like, well, whatever, we'll just we'll just roll with that. But that hasn't yeah. tripled down, so people feel like it's unfair to attack wealth because that wealth must have been. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that so we were trying to test certain policies as well in these focus groups. So we were looking at certain things that are probably on the agenda for the government right now and looking at how popular they were. And one of the things we were looking at, and it's a bit techy, is how. Predominantly wealthy people, basically, you can earn a living from your wealth, right? Wealth, you can earn an income from it. Mm-hmm. And, if you're, and if you're earning a living from certain types of wealth, then the tax you pay on that wealth is lower. So if you're paying, for example, capital gains tax, um, you're going to be paying substantially on, your, on, your, on, on the income you get from your wealth. You'll be paying substantially less tax than a nurse, for example. 
when you present some of this stuff to to focus groups in a way that there's outrage about it, right? I mean, is it fair? Yeah, I was going to say that. Yeah. Surely, when you give them that, yeah. you give them that yeah. scenario, like everybody just instantly is like, "Well, that's yeah. ridiculous." Yeah. yeah, and that speaks to I think something, and that you know, it's people across um, political uh, persuasion. So you'll get people from the left really really annoyed at that, and you'll get conservatives really annoyed at that. So there's a big consensus actually, some, you know, that something needs to change. What was interesting is why do people on the left object to something like that? Well, there might be a social justice reason, a, a, a reason of it's, it's just wrong, right? But then on the right, it's interesting that I think there's a procedural fairness thing. So you know, there are rules. We have rules in place. We should all play by those rules. But then we, but in this instance, we're seeing people not playing by those rules and paying less tax. Um, so there can be different values that are motivating how those different political groups feel about that particular issue mm-hmm. if you know what i mean i think that as compa- for campaigners that gives rise to big areas of consensus where you can quite confidently go out and say look you know for matters of social justice for lefties and for matters of for, for, for issues of procedural fairness if you're on the right this is clearly something that's wrong and we need to address so there's i think it's interesting that you can find ways into some of this stuff having you know done some of these groups and listened to people there's ways to think about you know positive solutions and actual policy change that's the, where you can get a consensus of public opinion behind you potentially mm-hmm. but yeah no um, there, there was outrage about the capital gain stuff and i, do, I think it that kind of unfairness that people see is very closely related to the sorts of unfairness that people see around tax avoidance and evasion. I mean, people would often say things like, well, it's just clever accounting, right? Or it's it's fiddling, it's chiseling the books. And it's that kind of sentiment that people will often sort of unprompted kind of say about this kind of stuff um, in focus groups. It's quite interesting. You can apply this issue of fairness to lots of different policies, basically. Um, one of the things I wanted to kind of ask you about was this that 46% of conservative voters were willing to personally pay more tax. Yeah. So that's really interesting to see because it, you kind of always think, that, oh, well, you know, centre-right or right-wing parties have an advantage because they can just always campaign on the fewer taxes. Right? Yeah. Like, even if that doesn't make sense, but, you know, long-term it makes for bad policy, et cetera, et cetera. It's just like, individually for voters that is a popular position yep. but this stat would suggest otherwise so can you unpack that for me 42 percent of conservatives want to see more taxes on wealth was it or 46 percent of conservatives were willing to personally pay more tax. so i think this reflects really when we look at polling on taxation it's pretty clear that people are generally quite progressive on this kind of thing um and that that's across the board people are generally willing to pay a bit more tax. Now, we ask that question specifically because the objection is often, well, it's very easy to say, um, of course people will say they're happy to see more tax um, because they're generally saying they're happy for wealthier people to pay more tax. But I think that's why it's really important that in our polling, polling we ask the question, would you personally be prepared to pay more tax? Because yeah, it, it kind of hopefully gets you around that objection a little bit. So I think we were quite encouraged that, that yeah, even amongst conservative voters, um, there was a, a tendency, you know, forty-two yeah, percent isn't bad amongst that group um, to be prepared to pay more tax. It could be influenced by what the twenty-nine election, because these are twenty-nineteen conservatives. So a lot of those will be people who, like for example, in the red wall, who we know are probably quite left-wing as far as the economy and tax are concerned. So, I mean, this this kind of speaks to the kind of fault line that I guess is running through the conservative voter base at the moment. You've got your traditional 
low-tax Shire Tories who have kind of, I guess, grown up on a diet of low taxation and, you know, small state. Um, but they're now joined by this base of ex-Labour voters um, in, pla- in places like the Red Wall who are economically very left-wing or quite left-wing mm-hmm. um, and would like to see better investment in their local communities, better investment in public services and, and, and would like to see a, a, a more equal economy. And mm-hmm. I, I, I think it's well just in terms of sort of overall attitudes to tax, there's interesting research that's been done by the Institute for Fiscal Studies and others from, you know, looking at the 1980s where there was never a massive public sort of tide of opinion wanting to see tax cuts all the time. Um, you know, it was never a huge thing for people, but it, it's a politically motivated thing. So I think I'd argue that actually people are generally very progressive on these things. Well, it's reassuring, but I'm not, I'm not sure if it's necessarily surprising that you, know, that you get those levels of support for, for tax increases, yeah, particularly given the 2019 election. There's obviously a turn against austerity, as clear from, from this report, but also from lots of other you know, reports. How can you know, progressives weave in the kind of tax argument into this anti-austerity feeling? Like how, how can we use that to talk about it? I think it's quite simple. Um, the likelihood is that there will be um, tax increases. I think the government is also gearing up for further public service cuts. I think what we have to ensure is that those with the broadest shoulders bear the burden. Um, we can't have a repeat of what's happened in the last 10 years with austerity. And indeed, even the prime minister has stood up and said that there will not be more austerity. Um, I think it's really important that we hold him to that. And some interesting, again, last week, the Office for National Statistics, I'm a bit of a nerd on this sort of thing, so forgive me. They put out um, some research showing that on the eve of the COVID pandemic, um, the UK was experiencing levels of income equality, inequality that it hadn't seen for another decade. So this is even before COVID hit. We were, we were seeing levels of inequality that we hadn't seen since 2010 or 20, 2009. Um, I think it's really clear that as we go forward, um, we need to ensure that we do need to tax wealth more effectively. Um, and we need to ensure that those with the broadest shoulders who can afford to pay their fair share. Um, and that our first priority is to, is to protect those who've been hit hardest um, in the last 10 years. All right, fantastic. Okay. Um... Where can people find you slash Tax Justice UK? Sure. So you can find us at our website, which is taxjustice, um, taxjustice.uk. We also have a Twitter feed, which is, um, again, I think it's at tax, tax Justice UK. Um, Great. Any other any other kind of reports or research on this on this area coming out soon that we should look out for? Gosh, not by us. I have to say, it was like, like I said, we're a really small organization. There's four of us now, but at the time we did this work, there was... Hey, you've doubled. Yeah, exactly. We've doubled in size, <laughs> which is great. Um, it's going to be, it's, that's going to enable us to sort of like go into parliament and put this kind of stuff in front of MPs and say, hey, look, you know, Mr. Redwall Conservative, your voters want to see higher taxes on wealth. You need to do it because that's what your voters want. Um, so that, yeah, that expansion will help us do that. Um, I mean, we're not planning any follow-up work on this. I mean, I think our sort of what we're, what we're trying to do is to make sure that as many other organisations are aware uh, and other campaigners, activists and others in the public are aware of this stuff. Um, and, and yeah, and, 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 to, and hopefully people find it useful and use it in their own work. Perfect. Thank you so much, Paul.
Okay, Paul Hebden there from Tax Justice UK. Please do check out um, him and his work. Uh, the website again is taxjustice.uk. Um, so over now to Warren. Um, yeah, so we, we wanted to include this interview around the recent kind of March period we've had. Basically, there's, there's been a recent budget. The Tories have, as you kind of expect it these days, have spun it in terms of it being very generous and positive. But actually, there's 15 billion a year of cuts to public services, uh, combining kind of recent announcements and also cuts in last year's spending review. Unprotected departments are expecting by 2025 to have per capita budgets 25% below their 2010 levels. So austerity really isn't over Yeah, um, I'm at so all. glad that austerity is over. <laughs> yeah. who, did, who said that the other day? <laughs> yeah, um, so that was one lovely announcement with the um, budget papered over considerably by kind of the government's um, kind of presentation of it all. There was an announcement of a corporation tax rise from 19% to 25%, so reversing a considerable amount of what the Tories have been doing over the last 10 years, which is funny that. That seems to be a bit of a running theme for some of their policies (laughs) recently. Um, But it's planned in 2023, so it's actually going to be about two years until that happens. They've given uh, a lot of forward warning on it, enough time for us all to uh, for corporations to get their money offshore. It also comes just ahead of the 2024 general election. So if our financial situation, well, I wouldn't say improves because we're going to be in a lot of debt for a long time, but if the tax take is larger than expected, you can imagine the Chancellor might well uh, quietly ditch the corporation tax rise as planned. Big Business as well was given a massive £25 billion tax giveaway in a super deduction for investment, which, by the way, doesn't include any kind of green strings attached. So all of that investment could be in fossil fuels, um, which would be... More, co- s- more coal mines. Super helpful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and as, as we've seen from behaviour of the market, you know, the episode before last, uh, if you just let people with money invest in stuff, then they will continue to invest in fossil fuels. So even, and even call it sustainable, amazingly. Uh, so I, I wouldn't expect different behavior here without, um, as you say, without any green strings. There's no reason for them not to do that. So as always, yeah, big missed opportunity uh, with the Conservatives to attach kind of uh, green strings or regulations or any kind of restrictions that would help the kind of green agenda. I think all they're generally interested in is kind of announcements of kind of th- things they can add or things that they can invest in, which actually don't necessarily shift the dial massively or that they end up just closing down like the recent green homes grant that went absolutely nowhere um (laughs) so yeah well done there uh the chancellor described the biggest business tax cut in history um which is an interesting thing to be announcing um when we are uh needing taxes um recently (laughs) anyway uh so i mean maybe it's important to claim small victories i guess you know corporation tax rise does end a decade of the ideology being that business tax can only go down yeah Yeah. and uh biden has also just announced a rise in corporation tax as well so it's the end of the race to the bottom on Mm. corporation tax at least but as you say it's uh it's a pretty small victory. Uh, as I said, yeah, continued austerity. There's the free ports thing going ahead, which is a terrible idea. The Tax Justice UK have also written on that um, and all of the copious amounts of evidence out there that it doesn't, in fact, uh, help develop kind of the areas in which it's placed. It's just a great way to stash uh, shitloads of stuff away from the tax man. Yeah, it's basically the idea that you can basically turn like, you know, s- south coast resorts into essentially like unregulated tax havens right mm. so like we're gonna have bournemouth is like the, the uk's singapore great incredibly low tax run by migrant workers who all uh, catch covid 
and run by one powerful family and uh for for like 20 years <laughs> it's it's the dystopian future that everyone who voted for brexit was hoping for yeah well exactly uh, and- <laughs> People have been talking in advance that kind of Rishi um, Sunak and uh, Boris would be, you know, daring to announce tax changes that are relatively progressive. So maybe things like capital gains tax being made equal to uh, income tax, which was kind of discussed in that interview there. Mm-hmm. Currently, the tax on earnings that you make on wealth is far lower than the tax you pay on your labor. Um and also maybe think changes to inheritance tax or introducing a carbon tax, which has been noted by pretty much every um, organization that takes kind of um, reaching net zero seriously, says that a carbon tax is absolutely necessary. So on the 23rd of March, we had tax day, which had a lot of kind of anticipation. And I don't know if excitement is the word to, to say for something <laughs> called tax day. Oh, I, uh, I couldn't I couldn't sleep. Yeah, 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 I had like four alarms uh, set, you know, oh. just one of those little like uh, light boards in the corner of my room that said, you know, four yeah. more sleeps till tax day. <laughs> I, lo- I just love all I love all the ritual around tax day. I like day. the pageantry. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Like, I like, you know, all the little things that you do, you put out um, your little tax collector on the shelf. <laughs> exactly. And if you're lucky, then a big guy dressed <laughs> as the Monopoly man will come and leave inherited wealth under your tree. I, yeah, I mean, I'm, I was always raised to leave uh, 200 uh, quid for the Monopoly man. You know, as he's doing his rounds, you have to leave 200 quid out because he passes go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so the 23rd of March um, came. You know, I woke up obviously early and ran downstairs excited to see what kind of gifts were laid. I'm just imagining you in like footy pajamas running down to open up your big yeah, tax yeah, exactly. day present. Yeah, yeah. Boot, booting up the computer to find out the tax day news. <laughs> and um, largely it turned out to be uh, probably as boring as uh, it, most people will have expected. It, there were a lot of consultations released largely on administrative stuff like uncertain tax treatment and tax administration framework. Whoa, 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 um, stop. And, I'm getting too excited at all of this. Yeah, <laughs> and it, as erotic as uh, that stuff does sound, I, you know, I can't talk about it kind of live on air lest we uh, all lose ourselves like uh, like cats with catnip. But um, it was all kind of efficiency stuff that business... It, like everything written about it was from kind of like uh, tax consultancies and stuff like that. It was all very much about like the plumbing, basically, of our tax system. Government, government did announce 24 months after a consultation that it won't be reviewing trusts. So it managed to run a whole consultation on trusts, probably... Uh, spurred on by the fact that people were worried that trusts were being used almost as a vehicle for shielding wealth and reducing inheritance tax. I mean, who would think? Isn't that the entire point um, of a trust? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, 24 months later, uh, you know, they quietly announced that the consultation determined that um, there's no need to review it. Funny that. Yeah. uh, The the consultation was titled Nothing to See Here. (laughs) Nothing to See Here. Please keep moving. (laughs) A running running theme with recent government uh, releases Mm -hmm. and reports. A little little nod there to the recent uh, race report, which has managed to somehow... Does Britain have a racism problem? Answer, no. (laughs) Thanks, everyone. Don't believe your lying eyes. Uh, So, yeah. uh, The continuing theme, really, of saying that everything's fine. I don't know what you're all complaining about. Um, a glaring omission as well was any government statement at all on capital gains tax, inheritance tax, or carbon taxes. Um, all of the kind of mentions over the last few months kind of got us thinking that maybe they were kind of warming up for for something about that. You know, if the Tories are going to announce a, a tax hike, it's probably going to fall on the working and middle classes. But they haven't even announced that. So, uh, yeah, seems to be no kind of discussion around tax. 
Maybe they're going to do it next year when COVID's out the way. I mean, that would be a kind like the kind of best case scenario is that they're they are just holding it back until after COVID's out the way. But more likely is that they're kind of typically failing to put kind of any action or or their proverbial money where their mouth is when they talk about we're going to make the system really fair or we're going to be the most progressive kind of Tory government since forever. Um, yeah, it's just a load more waffle, to be honest, and no kind of serious shifting of the dial on kind of tax, wealth inequality, property taxes, council tax, which is still horrendously um, all sorts of stuff that needs reform. They've completely managed to, to avoid it all, uh, which is astonishing. This is very much the nothing to see here, as we said, of, of but, yeah. but not just for this, but rather the entire tax system. It's just like basically saying... Yeah, it's kind of more or less fine. Um, and uh, yeah, obviously watch this space for whether when, when we come a bit closer to an election in 2024, if that uh, planned corporation tax rise st- sticks around as well. Uh, call me a cynic, but something something tells me they might be worried about the money tap drying up if, um, <laughs> if that goes ahead. <laughs> Over the last kind of month, Raj, you were talking about your kind of feelings on Labour's response to the budget and what was happening. Yes, that. I mean... As with many of Labour's responses, or indeed just general actions uh, recently, this is predictably wishy-washy and confusing. They seem to be confusing ta- business tax with tax on on people, on people's labour and on families. It's yet again, it's Labour. Sh- labour is the party of business, which is number one should be definitely not true. I mean, Labour should be the party of workers <laughs> rather than businesses. Hmm. That's kind of, about the name there. kind of their whole deal. Um, <laughs> but equally, like, you should sound the triangulation klaxon um, because they appear to be thinking that they're targeting the probably enormous voting block of people who think are being basically beaten down by being employed by large corporations or, you know, having to deal with them, but who also don't think that they should be taxed in order to pay for, like, public services and stuff. Yeah. There's bad news on the triangulation and clacks, and we did a focus group on that. It didn't test very well, so now it's a triangulation triangle. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a lot less grating. Yeah, exactly. People, people find it more... <laughs> 68% of people found it more pleasant than the klaxon, so that's yeah. what we're going for. Um, the thing about this that is, is nuts is, I mean, you know, let's go back to the research from Tax Justice. These are wildly unpopular things that the that the government is doing right like they're just they're basically trying to do smoke screen oh yeah we've ended austerity without doing without ending austerity but like in fact continuing austerity <laughs> that could do that right so that because they realize it's unpopular right it's just mm. bad it's bad to be linked to that now so they're trying to distance themselves from that and so instead of labor just attacking that uh bit of shithousery they're like hmm well what would tory voters like <laughs> And then we'll try and win those over for some reason, rather than just trying to win over like the big blocks of of everyday voters who feel that the tax system mm. is unfair. Yeah, like this is a this is the majority position. This is it's a bit like in the U.S. where Democrats are like, oh no, we can't offer people uh, free healthcare because everybody wants that, and that's not how you win elections. You don't give you don't win elections by doing policy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> and for Labour as well, it's trying to do the kind of third way thing, which is like, uh, you know, in the similar way to their rhetoric on immigration, where it's like, we're allowed to do a little bit of racism because that will bring the that will bring the the 
you know the the swung Tory voters back over to our side when yeah when when we're in when we're in number ten you'll be able to say the word one time <laughs> <laughs> we we exactly. we all know where that kind of headed in in 2015 I think that's what uh, I, I what strikes me is just really a absurd with it is that Labour Labour lost all the swings towards the Tories that we saw in 2019 was from Labour people staying home it there wasn't an enormous yeah, yeah, yeah. there wasn't an enormous switch of kind of uh progressive people siding Tory they just felt uh whether it was because of kind of media representation or because of things Corbyn had actually done or various things or because they supported Brexit but lots of people decided not to turn out for Labour and I think you know those people you need to motivate them it's not that you need to tempt them they're not conservatives you need to tempt over they are people who feel like Labour doesn't represent them or or you know there's no point voting to them voting for them and yeah, I mean, Starmer doesn't seem to be kind of gripping the UK with kind of new energy, and and nor, do, nor does his shadow cabinet, to be honest. And making, I don't see him making those people feel like they should turn out uh, when they didn't yeah. in twenty nineteen. I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't and see like it this, resulting this in a pitch, win. This pitch to, to Tory voters as well is just ridiculous because, as with whether it's with racism or with like so fiscal conservatism or whatever if you're someone who feels like you are um you know a racist or a fiscal conservative or even just like you know you don't like immigrants or you don't like benefits claimants or whatever for or or a, f- a fiscal <laughs> racist yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> then you're not going to go for the party that's just offering you a little bit of that like, <laughs> no you, you, yeah yeah what why would you choose that? You're like, I don't know. I don't want the Diet Coke. Just <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Why are you going to go for like the half-assed version when, when like you're probably like you hate many other aspects of Labour's platform anyway? But like, oh, no, it was the racism that, that just just let you, you know, gave you that excuse you needed to vote Labour when actually you disagree with them on nearly everything. Whereas there's people sitting there who are like, Labour sucks. They offer me nothing. They're just like the Tories. Mm. But I, you know, I used to. I voted Labour in twenty, um, you know, twenty seventeen. But now they're just. There's nothing to them. Mm. Like those are probably easier targets. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm just saying. Yeah, and I, I, I'm amazed by this whole the whole discourse of like, well, because at first you could see the point of a Starmer like figure where it's like, okay, well, we got lots of people very excited about Labour, but the, the execution um, was off i think you know, the, like yeah 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 and the, and the and also the personal baggage around the leader has just become too much for us to overcome so we just need like somebody who can like deliver this in a more polished mm. way and who can wear a tie properly and doesn't vegetable garden mm. or whatever it is that everybody hated <laughs> you know um like i see i can see the point of that but then he, he was like guys i have an idea and just like pulled out a, like a flip chart of ed Miliband <laughs> and was like let's try this again and it was like well do we not remember that not working like that wasn't that long ago i don't understand why that's mm, so whole... milk toast it, in, yeah, <laughs> yeah in general let's just try and be as inoffensive so, as possible uh, <laughs> it's so weird the, i mean the whole thing and it, i i'm i'm curious about this so I, i've heard i've seen a lot of stuff where people were like oh well you know uh no wonder that labor aren't doing so well in the polls at the moment because uh, Boris is riding high on the vaccination successes. And I'm like, that strikes me as insane. Like the death toll is... Anyway, 
But okay, so maybe that's correct. But especially on this fiscal stuff, like in the last year, um, the you know the economic hold that the Conservative Party seems to have over those sort of discourse, like it should have been undermined a million times. You know, they've gone back on themselves in terms of you know like adopting Labour manifesto <laughs> pledges, yeah. right? Like, actually, there is a magical money tree. <laughs> like that's that's. Don't worry about that. We didn't mean that when we said it before. Um, you know, they did also a bunch of like, well, Rishi Sunak, right? The UK's most popular politician spearheaded a bunch of stuff that specifically made people die more. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, there, there was this um, to help out a piece that, in yeah. the... Yeah, exactly. There was a piece in the Progressive Review, which uh, we'll link to. It's very good on this. Where it's, you know... The UK is facing one of the highest death tolls from COVID-19 in the world, and many of these mistakes are linked directly to the Treasury. So we have um, <laughs> just uh, not doing severe lockdowns in time, which all economists said that you should definitely do. Um, subsidies for eating in restaurants. Uh, a relaxed attitude to international business travelers. Encouraging workers to return to offices. By the way, Boris is still on that one. <laughs> he's still on that. He's still on that tip. Um, yeah, absolutely on that one. And then failing to extend the furlough scheme until mere days before a second lockdown was introduced, uh, as all like attempts to kickstart the economy. These are all decisions that are directly linked to thousands, tens of thousands of mm. people dying. And, and 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 also fuck the economy. Like in the long term, ultimately. Like it, it just didn't win on any on any level by its own logic either. It just resulted in bigger and longer. Remember lockdowns. when? It, remember at the beginning when everyone was worried about what would happen to Pret? <laughs> that was <laughs> that was a good time, yeah. wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and by everyone you mean Richie Sunak <laughs> specifically. Uh, so he. So, so how how is it possible that the Tories still get to have this hold on? economic policy and still be seen as being making the right decisions. How is it possible that Rishi Sunak is the most popular politician in the country? Like that, I don't understand what's happening as a, you know, as a foreigner here. I don't get it. I think it's largely because due to the, down to the Tories, basically, um, well, proposing stuff that they've sort of kind of cribbed from Labour, but like older Labour and then, then Labour basically being like, uh well uh 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 we we also agree but we want to do slightly less of it <laughs> <That's>... yeah <laughs> this is yeah i mean this it's the unfortunate it's the unfortunate result of i think of the fact that corbyn has pulled economically the overton window so much further to the left and the tories have adapted and responded to that like they have been like you know what deficits really are not that much of an issue it's still, you know, absurd, basically, that for the last 10 years, they've been like, there is absolutely no way we can afford any of this stuff. Like, it would increase our debt to GDP ratio by like 2%. That would be totally unacceptable. Like, the yeah, devil's yeah, the ratio. devil's ratio. And now they've been like, oh, you know what, actually, fucking, let, we'll, we'll just blow it out the water, which is, you know, in many ways was the right thing to do. Like, we needed to do it. Um, but Labour have... have Basically, the whole narrative of Labour now is that we are going to be kind of shifting to the centre at exactly the moment where where the Tories and society as a whole is basically beginning to catch up with the narrative that Corbyn was actually promoting for the last three years. Like, people are 
now and especially with the demographic change that we're seeing like younger people who are more kind of left-wing more socialist becoming potential voters or becoming you know entering their late 20s their early 30s where they're much more likely to vote as well like labor seems to just be moving in the opposite direction to where where everyone else is going uh and they're being caught out by it because basically every time the tories announce something they're like well to differentiate from them we would have to be a bit more left-wing, but that would be what Corbyn was suggesting. So we're just going to have to kind of... <laughs> we're not going to win any Tory we're, voters by being left-wing. We're just, yeah, we're just going to be like, <laughs> okay, yeah. And it, no, I don't know, yeah, it's just, uh, I really feel like it's not going to... It's not going to work, certainly now, if an election was called right now. I mean, fingers crossed, either Starmer pulls it together or he gets replaced before the election because this is not a winning strategy at all. So... So what would the what would the messaging have to be? I mean, it's also in this uh, progressive review article, he, he talks about how even when the bigger left parties, you know, L- Labour and the Democrats, well, even when they've won uh, elections, they've tended to not win the economic argument. They've either just adopted neoliberalism, or actually they just won in other places, like the with the Biden election. Anybody who said that economics was their number one um, factor in their vote voted Trump still. Um, so there's kind of like this what, what in a perfect in a perfect world, you know what what line uh, can Starmer take because this there's this like incredibly powerful rhetoric that the right has owned since Thatcher, right basically, which is money and morality intrinsically linked, right you. It's this like, well, self-styled punitive meritocracy, right? That Thatcher came up with, which is work hard and succeed. And therefore, if you don't succeed, it's because you didn't work hard, you're lazy. And everyone, everyone loves that. And then if you did, it's because you deserve it, right? Like you, your, your success is fully your own and you uh, deserve this success, which is very, that's a very attractive thing, right? To, to lots and lots of people. It's very hard to kind of break people away from that, like, that dualism of morality and money. I mean, it also happens to build support, like it's got built-in support, right, from the business owners, the people who can donate to political campaigns, the people who fund think tanks and media outlets that can quote those think tanks. And, you know, like, as we were saying, uh, you know, before the pod, there's there's a whole grind that you can get and you can become a talking head, right? And there's a built-in system for that underpins this kind of these sets of economic arguments so it's like a that's kind of the open question right how how is it that there could be how can you chip away at that like i suppose and the there was there's a kind of concept that i kind of touched on i remember when when i was studying some of this kind of stuff and it's funny how often people think of freedom or think of liberty as just the removal of of kind of barriers and it's just negative liberty it's just about deregulation it's just about government getting out your way and i think like people a lot of people on the left i understand it and i hope increasingly people on the right will begin to recognize it it's like there's a lot more to kind of freedom people talk about money being freedom and the root of that is if you have access to resources then you're actually able to enjoy the opportunities and the life and uh you know you're able to become an entrepreneur or you're able to enjoy your kind of free time whatever it is that you want to do 
you know, in in a way, uh, in the way that you wish. Whereas, yeah, I mean, if you're poor, ask those people if they feel free. Like, even if the government's out of their way, even if they're not regulated or restricted, like, no one poor feels that they're free. Yeah, what freedom is it to have to work, you know, 12-hour days every day on a zero-hours contract just to be able to, to live? Like, you know, wouldn't it be more free if they could, you know, people in that situation could just do whatever they wanted and they wouldn't have to worry about, like, being homeless or starving or you being know. able to build a life on it you know right so so i guess the the opportunity then is like as, as there are more and more people fit into that category right as as uh inequality increases and as inequality increases there's more and more people who who even though even if they have like a you know steady job and are nominally you know middle class more and more people fit into that thing where they're just like, actually, I'm on an endless grind. I'm worried about debt. I have I have many many choices curtailed, right? Because of the economic system that we live in, like that. That is those. That's the argument that you need to be making: is that freedom isn't free, as uh, as Team America once told. <laughs> um, you know, like that. There's a there's more there's more to freedom than just money. Right. Um, so that I mean, yes, this is the argument that needs to be made. But uh, I don't know who who is available to make who's that making argument. it and who's yeah and drawing that line between actually like if you if you value individual freedom, then actually a lot of you know economically progressive policies are about providing that. It's not about kind of curtailing. It's not about chopping down the tallest trees or curtailing kind of individual freedoms or taxes theft or whatever people kind of come up with it's about like actually ensuring everyone has at least the most basic opportunity to build build a life and to be free from kind of deprivation or precarity as well i think i think that's the main thing that people feel is that sense of precarity in their lives even if as you say they might be in a white collar job um they might have kind of uh, a half decent education all that kind of stuff it's you know with the de- with the developments of technology, with the advances of kind of society over the last fifty years, we were all expecting to be doing a kind of three day working week and living in great riches. And you know, it hasn't worked out that way, which is strange. <laughs> Almost like the system is stacked to siphon most of the wealth to a small group of people. What? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I mean, yeah. Uh, I guess it's a shame we. I uh, can't really end the podcast on a more hopeful note uh, at that point. <laughs> Viva but, la um, revolution. I, I don't know. I think it is hopeful in that there is such an obvious slam dunk approach. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's a no-brainer to be like, we should tax these uh, extremely rich billionaires more. <laughs> like, that's the most popular position that it's you can all... have. Like, there's no, the only people who hate this are... Are, are billionaires. Are billionaires. Yeah. <laughs> all, the, all those who work for them. Um, And the weird, like, there's there are like uh people whose brains have been fried who are like simps for billionaires <laughs> which you see a lot of around elon yeah. musk which who are if like you tax billionaires te- the economy know, will crash yeah <laughs> they're, they're the t- temporarily embarrassed oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Billionaires, Classic, right? yeah so but i think it's a pretty small proportion of people and so it just seems like such an, an obvious approach just be like hey we should tax the extremely rich more and make things less shit for most people like yes, everyone would appreciate that yeah. actually, and it turns out that even you know even Tory voters who own their own home, like even them, 
they will they yeah, also yeah. back yeah, yeah. to a large degree right so uh it, it feels like a mm. an obvious open goal um so i guess it's just it's like a question of who will, know, who will you, who will make the yeah. who, who will get that goal right yeah it, if you're in the party, push, <laughs> yeah. you know, the leadership to do that. If you're outside of the party, you know, push somebody else to do that. But um, somebody needs to be making this argument. It, it's crazy that it's a, that it's just left there. Step forward, Lawrence Fox. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> uh, in the meantime, you can donate to the uh, ever-growing Tax Justice UK and other such kind of lobby groups. The Tax Justice UK is now a whopping eight people and uh, growing. So help them become nine. Um, and consider they've double, I believe they've doubled in the last two years <laughs> so if if we keep this rate of growth up then by the end of the century every member in the everyone in the UK will be a member of Tax Justice UK <laughs> if we dream it we can achieve yes. it guys let's get out there and uh, yeah please do support them we'll put a link in uh, the show description to their website um, and uh, you know if you if you like us talking about tax justice you can support us too we've got oh, Patreon yeah. it's patreon.com slash connected and disaffected um, but that is it for this week thanks everyone for listening at home and we'll be back in a couple of weeks time bye bye cheers Rowan, do your cats eat your houseplants?